Listening Dog Media. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another question from the box. Say when. When. <clears throat> oh, we've lost him. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, I was wondering. I thought you must have uh, the box. Must be massive, I thought. <laughs> <laughs> Fallen into it. <laughs> All right. Um. How to DJ. How to DJ. DJ. How to DJ. The aim is to surprise them where you stand out differently from everyone else. Hello, I'm Chris Hawkins and this is How To DJ. I think that's kind of how I see it. It's like I'm playing an instrument, making two songs become one. It's when those messy bits of passion and energy come together. How To DJ. A podcast that explores the life stories, techniques, minds and experiences of much-loved DJs, where I ask them to pick five questions from a box of 45. I remember hitting those things by accident as a vinyl DJ and you'd be like, oh my God, this is incredible, listen to it, that sounds like that backing vocal singing over this. And my guest for this episode is one half of the production duo Ray and Christian. And then suddenly I've got a publishing deal, I can come off housing benefit and also just spend all my time on the label. He's the founder of Grand Central Records. I loved it, I lived it 24-7 and I drew as many people close to what we were trying to achieve and it, it was a scene you know and he's the author of the caterpillar club and people could see that i'd made a inroad into a new creative period of my life being able to direct my art towards writing words as well as still making music has saved me as an individual in my own head because it gives me a way forward a path mark ray welcome to how to dj Hi, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here. Mark, before heading into the box of questions, did your DJing journey start in Newcastle? Yes, it did. And it was uh, quite a wonderful time, yeah. Well, I just started uh, buying records and then quite quickly thought, well, I should play these loud to people. But uh, it was at Millionaire's Club uh, that I did my first night and it was about five people turned up, which was quite a good rate for the time. <laughs> what did you play that night? Do you remember? Oh, Mantronics. Um, LL Cool J, Trouble Funk. I might have even chucked in Rock Lobster by the B-52s. That's probably when the pints kicked in. And uh, yeah, no, it was wonderful because it was actually a really good um, DJ booth that was on the dance floor and it was like a sort of little crow's nest. It wasn't up too high, but it was just the technology of it, which was two Technics and a mixing desk and all the lights and everything. And it really felt like I was in a spaceship about to take off, to be honest with you, even though there was no one there, really. What got you into it? I think passion for just the feeling of music, which my parents had instilled in me because they loved to play records from the disco era in the 70s when I was, you know, 10 years old. So I could see how powerful music was by their response to it. I mean, obviously, a lot of people bought records back then, less so now, but that was the way that you interacted. If you wanted to listen to, you know, a great song, you would obviously take the top 40. But if you wanted underground stuff, then you had to go uh, to record shops, import shops 
There was one called Hitsville, USA in Newcastle, and they had uh, things like the first Public Enemy album when that came out. And uh, that was your gateway window into this fascinating world of dance music, you know? So are you completely self-taught? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, in a really quite um, comedic way, in a way. I mean, the passion was very much there. I've got a photograph of me wearing a feeler tracksuit top, some uh, tight jeans and some baseball shoes stood in front of basically a garage double deck piece of wood with two uh, belt driven decks in it and a realistic mixer and uh, I remember at the time I was really into mixing but uh, there was no speed controls on those decks and I didn't really quite know the difference between that and Technics at the time because this would have been about 1987 okay I had two copies of Mantronics's Who Is It and I was trying to you know bring it back to the beginning and play the track and keep a rotation of maybe 16 bars going uh, but the record wouldn't slip because it was on um rubber so um rather than work out that you needed slip mats i just put talcum powder on the bottom of the um mantronics 12 inch which meant the room smelled really beautiful while i was trying to learn to dj but uh it was all a bit uh, haphazard and then i went down to spinning records and spoke to people in there people like kenny grogan and yeah they just said, hey, no, you need slip mats. And also someone selling some Technics through the shop here. So I'd saved up and I got some. And then that, then it became genuinely six hours a day trying to learn how to scratch. I was supposed to be going to college, but I was really going to scratch college at home by listening to Cash Money and then trying to copy what he was doing, you know. You went to Manchester Poly. Was that the beginning of your music adventure in Manchester? Yes. And... um while I was sat there in Newcastle, I thought, well, I've definitely got to go somewhere where there's a soul music scene because I was really into loose ends at the time. And Manchester is where I got in and I was very excited to go there. And within the first week, I'd worked out that there was this Sunday night radio show by Stu Allen where they played the top 10 of house, top 10 of hip hop, top 10 of soul. And that was really magically romantic to me because it was like being transported into the heartlands of American black music in the most visceral way. You just sat there on a nylon sofa, just totally immersed in this top 10, which really was some very underground stuff. Can you imagine trying to play like a top 10 of soul music in the 80s? Uh, you know, it wasn't all Alexander O'Neill. There'd be like some gospel tracks in there as well. So it was a massive education. And I lived very much the first year in Hathersage Road next to Victoria Baths, which is where Voodoo Ray, a guy called Gerald, had his like launch party and they had a party in there actually while I was living next door. Um, and I remember watching the people going in and out of the um, venue, which I couldn't work out how there was a rave going on in a swimming pool. There might be some electrical difficulties there. But, you know, I just interacted with the environment that was there, which was the record shops. I'd go and uh, buy some odd bits and bobs to give me sort of uh, the nice sort of feeling while I was DJing. They're smokable, of course. We won't have to describe them any further. But, you know, I'd be wandering around and hearing reggae and blues and places where I went. And it was just a really um, exciting time for me because, you know, I, I hadn't been exposed to um, things like reggae sound systems that was at the Manchester Carnival and uh, hip hop radio shows and just the shops in Manchester, which were brilliant. You know, Eastern Block, I remember buying Roxanne Chante, um, Have a Nice Day on 12 Inch from Eastern Block. And wow, just staring at the label on it. Yeah, I mean, these were like really big moments that excited me to my core. So the passion was there. And that would mean that when I got home, I would literally play those records to death. I'd wear the beginnings of them out. Certainly the ones I was scratching, you could barely hear the first uh, 
kick or note of them because they were destroyed by the styluses, which I couldn't afford to replace very regularly, you know. Did you finish your degree? I had a little um, hiccup, but yes, I got a 2-1 in the end, and I had an incredible experience where I had to go to Prestwich Mental Hospital and try and prove that people with um, senile dementia would behave like uh, pigeons in a Skinnerian test of operant conditioning, which all sounds a bit gobbledygook, but basically, you know, doing hip-hop during the day and then going to this weird part of Manchester and the Northwest's past, you know? So I know you've talked to me about writing books before, and I know that obviously we're talking about DJing now, but I am, I'm writing a book at the moment that's set in 1976, and the next book is going to be set in 1990 in Manchester, and it's going to be about this period that we're talking about now, because that period, you know, pre-internet, being a student in Manchester and interacting with this Victorian past. So there's going to be a novel come out of that at some point, but you'll have to give me about five years on that one. <laughs> <laughs> Superb. I look forward to that. So, well, it was the very beginning of the 90s that you're talking about, yeah. So I went to Manchester in 87, so I should have been finished by 90, but I did a combined studies degree, which I don't know if they do them anymore, but it was a really difficult degree to choose because I did one half chemistry, which unless you're a real boffin, do not try and do degree level chemistry. And then one half was psychology. But between it all, I, I worked out I had about maybe twice as many lectures as everyone else because it was two, you know, disciplines uh, having a fight. And I can remember the f whole first year of chemistry that I did, I just stared at the blackboard and thought, I don't know what's going on because it was like degree level maths to work out the organic chemistry. And I just thought, I'm, I'm not going to really bother with this. So unfortunately, I failed the chemistry. So they said, well, you're going to have to go back a year and do economics or something to fill in the amount of uh, credits that you need. But that was perfect timing because that meant that I was on Upper Charlton Road with only one lecture a week to go to. And what did I do the rest of the time? I practiced scratching and DJing and did this nightclub called uh, Fever with a chap called Ross Clark, who's a film director now. And Dave Walker was part of that scene who went on to do Fat City with me. So yeah, it was an opportunity to invest even more time into um, promoting a nightclub and DJing um, inside that nightclub. Because really the DJ culture now is that, oh, you're going to say, I'm a DJ, and therefore I'm going to go around bars and clubs and say, I'm a DJ, book me, you know, Instead, we were very much of a DIY attitude, and that was, no, we're going to make the club, and we will make the club successful, and we're going to be the DJs in that club. And I know lots of people have had a similar story, but that was the way we did it. We made flyers. I did letter set flyers. So while I was um, DJing on my knees and damaging my back, scratching like uh, cash money or trying to, I was out flyering and building up this nightclub called Fever, which was held at Man Alive Club on a Wednesday night. So you can imagine how much effort you had to put in to get a club full on a Wednesday night. And that was the culture back then in Manchester. You know, the students would have their midweek nights. And um, because we were playing a much broader church of music, we always attracted locals. So there was always soul and hip hop fans from Manchester's community who realized what we were doing wasn't just a student night. It was actually a night that had a broader range of sound in it than what was going on. When did you meet Steve Christian? This wasn't um, until about 1994. So the Fever nightclub had gone on until about 92. Then the Fat City shop opened in 93, and I opened the Fat City shop with Ed Pitt. So you can imagine then, if you're talking about DJing and records, you know, Ed and Dave and I 
we were getting boxes and boxes of import records sent up from London and picked up in Warrington that had been flown in to the airport. And then suddenly you've got a direct link to all of those records that you want to play and you're getting them up front. I mean, you obviously would have had similar experience, you know, getting American import promos. That means you would be getting them when they were two or three days after their release to the DJs of America. So this is all very exciting stuff. And then with Steve, by the time I'd you know, worked my way through the shop and thought I really want to do a record label. So I started a record label. And then within a few months of starting it, I bumped into Steve and uh, it became obvious that Steve was actually a real musician and you know, he could mix records because he was in Simply Red's demo studio in Juicy House. And would you believe by serendipity, we were literally opposite each other. So I had a, an office there where I was making beats and then Steve would come in and make comments on them. And then from then on, we... um licensed a Tony DEP from Trenton in New Jersey. That was like hip-hop beats. I suppose looking back, it was straight hip-hop beats that people should rhyme on, but it was in that trip-hop era where Mo Wax was doing well, Ninja Tune were starting up. So we joined in on that really and did a lot of remixes and Steve and I would be in the studio there till you know, four o'clock in the morning, remixing Nightmares on Wax and The Far Side. And the way that that relationship worked was that Steve hadn't been a DJ and he obviously liked the music that he liked, but it was so different to my experience where I'd bought lots of records, I'd sold records, I knew what people liked, I knew what drum breaks were hot, I knew what drum breaks fitted into the history of a Bismarcky record next to the same drum break then being used in the acid jazz scene and then being sped up and used in the drum and bass scene. So I had the lineage knowledge of how things worked. And of course, in Fat City, we'd sold a lot of jazz and funk breaks to the punters, but also I'd been collecting that myself. So basically, we pushed all of that experience into Steve's musical experience because Steve could sit at a piano and write you know, a chord progression or he could copy a chord progression or add on top of a Herbie Hancock sample. So suddenly we had this like, ability to be given an a cappella from a London A&R man and then just make an amazing remix in 24 hours pretty much. So that's basically how Ray and Christian started. So it seems like soon after meeting Steve you became Ray and Christian. Yeah I did one record as first priority which was me and Ross Clark as a DJ name at Fever and then I did another record just as Ray which actually really weirdly was a, like a, a jazz drum and bass record which I got Marcus Intellex to remix and this is like in 1994 you know so it's going a long way back and then it was like you know what Steve you know our partnership is good here so let's just call ourselves Rain Christian and then we can go on this journey which we did I mean it's, it's easy to describe in hindsight what was going on but I had the bit between my teeth and I just knew that I really wanted to make something happen it's naivety of youth do you think you did uh, yeah, yeah we got on a roller coaster I certainly got on a roller coaster I had far too many jobs going on but basically I loved it I lived it 24 7 and I drew as many people close to what we were trying to achieve and it, it was a scene you know from the nightclubs that came out of it. Remember, Fever existed before Fat City, existed before Grand Central, existed before Counterculture. So really it was like a churning of the same concepts. Do cool clubs, promote them, get artists that you would sell in the shop, get artists who are coming out on Grand Central, get them to remix the people. So it became a real convolution of all these energies of everyone, you know? So DJ Spinner would come over and he'd stay in my house. This is when DJ Spinner was just coming up, really. And lots of people ended up in my house. Sometimes when I wasn't there, you know, Richard Dorfmeister, I'd come back to my house after DJing in Oslo 
and Richard Dorfmeister had spent the weekend there because Darren had had a party, you know. So <laughs> it was an intense period of energy and lots of people were living it and also making a living out of it. And I think that's how you create a scene. You know, you could make hit records and live in a big house on the outskirts of Manchester and never go anywhere and be signed to a London record label. This was a label in the Northern Quarter, a record shop next to other record shops. Everybody knew each other and everyone got on and had a really wonderful time, you know. So Ray and Christian, Fever, Grand Central Records, Fat City Records, did it all make you rich, Mark? Uh, I don't think I've ever really fully explained it, but all the money that I made was earned just by me and my talent. So basically, I never paid myself a wage from Grand Central and I never paid myself a wage from Fat City, maybe 100 quid a week from Fat City to eat kebabs. <laughs> Literally, I lived on Abdul's kebabs when I was doing Fat City. Then I was on housing benefit um, and with Grand Central, I got investment into that. So basically, in the end, I ended up in a situation where the money that I'd earned was from working with Texas. And I mean, this is the weird little things about life that you would perhaps explain to a kid coming up is that, you know, you make yourself available to be lucky. And then when you are lucky, you grab a hold of it so hard that you deliver. So if someone says, oh, I've got um, an acapella of the far side on DAT from my brother who's out in LA, do you want to do a remix? And then I spent like a week finding the right samples, making sure that the remix was hot. And then I took it to Steve, he mixed it. Then that remix got the Nightmares on Wax remix, which led to us working with Texas. The Texas situation was um, I remixed them at home and it was in the wrong key, but that was the best mistake I've ever made because if Steve had been with me, then he would have put it in the right key and that would have been the end of the story. But what ended up happening is they said, we love the beat that you've done, but it's in the wrong key can we write a new song on the beat you've done, which then went on White on Blonde, which sold 1.4 million copies. And then suddenly I've got a publishing deal. I can come off housing benefit and also just spend all my time working on the label. So in the end, Grand Central lost my investors about £400,000. I never took a wage from Grand Central or anything. All the money I made was from remixing with Steve. I mean, I'll tell you all the facts here. Why don't we get it out there? So basically, when, when we started out, we'd do a remix for 300 quid, then 500 quid, then three grand. Then we'd maybe go back to doing one for 500 quid. If it was Jerry the Damager, me or the Papes, we'd do it for cheap because we liked Jerry the Damager. You know, and it was cool to be on it. We'd get offered uh, 10 grand to do Bewitched. And I'd just turn around and go, do you know what? I don't want anything to do with remixing Bewitched. I look back at that now and I think I could have 10 grand for remixing Bewitched. Remember, this was a very hot period in the music industry for money sloshing around. I mean, I think the story is that EMI had a 750 grand bill for taxis alone for one year. That's just people jumping in taxis all over the place. So anyway, we were doing these um, remixes and... You know, I think M people paid us 18 grand for one remix, three days work, bang. That's how I made my money and survived. But remember, that's just a flash moment. And after four years, we basically weren't getting remixes anymore. And that's why you've got to grab your opportunities while you can. And yeah, I invested the money that I got in the moment in buying a house, which basically I then um, upgraded and then managed to get a flat in London, which I'm now sat in here. So no, I didn't make loads of money, but I had an incredible ride. 
And also more importantly, and it's kind of might be overlooked, is that I decided to use the successful era of Grand Central to pay up to 14 people wages to be part of this opportunity. You know, if things had gone differently, Chris, I would still be in Manchester now and Grand Central might be like a ninja tune or or something still going and signing hit records. But I was unable to do that. And of course, the threads all come apart. But yeah, I tried my best and I earned my money like a miner down at the coalface. Remixes, DJing all around the world, very tiring, very good fun, excellent traveling. You know, some of the things I saw, I would have never gone to Australia, never gone to New Zealand. All of Europe did those wonderful and just really absorbed that. And that was when we were riding high. And of course, uh, life moves on. (laughs) When did you bring the curtain down on Manchester and everything? And what happened next? Yeah, so with the record label, it came to a crux point whereby Steve had left being in Rain Christian. And that meant that the last sort of couple of years of Grand Central survived on licensing the Sleepwalking album to a label called K7, which did Kruder and Dorfmeister's albums. That gave me enough money to pay the wages of everyone who was working there. Remember, there was like 10 people there. And, you know, we were making most of our money from licensing. So to sort of answer a bit of the previous question within this, you know, most of the money from Grand Central was like giving the rights to release a CD called Ibiza 6 with a Rain Christian track on there or an Only Child track on there. And then basically what happened was that Steve left Rain Christian so I couldn't use or release any Rain Christian material. Then AIM had a break and had a baby with um, Nico, who we'd signed to do an album with. And then we were just trying to find another way of breaking through. And of course, the past sort of came through with MCPS saying, you haven't paid your MCPS on exports. And it all got uh, a little bit tough. So I had to start laying people off. People who are living in my house, I had to start, you know, reconfiguring everything, which was more painful for them, but also like psychologically painful for me, because it's like you create a scene, you are part of a scene, and then you have to deconstruct it like Lego bit by bit and put it back in the box, close the box, and then take it down to the charity shop and say, that doesn't work anymore. And that's kind of, in essence, what happened. Because of the psychological impact on me, I decided that I would go to London after I'd made the label smaller and then try and find either new artists or a home for what I'd done so that I could continue to be an artist. So that occurred. And then eventually there was sort of a perfect storm of the MCPS saying, hey, you know, we're going to do a 10-year audit on you. And basically they did an audit and they said, well, you know, you're 20 grand out. And I was like, well, yeah, but that stuff didn't sell in Europe. And they're like, well, we need, we need it next week. And I was like, well, if you need it next week, I haven't got it. And I said, I'm oh, going to have to liquidate. So I liquidated the country, uh, the company, liquidated the country, was exactly what I did as well as a Freudian slip. I liquidated my relationship with Britain and emigrated to America and, um, That's the only way I could deal with what had happened because from a psychological perspective, it was an incredible blow because I'd lost Rain Christian because Steve was away having a family and that didn't exist anymore. And um, I've lost the record label that I had spent 11 years living 24-7, not starting a family, not having the things that I'd watched everyone have around me because I'd been so committed So I had to escape because it felt like a terrible defeat, a Napoleonic defeat, really. And that's the way that I took it. And rather than being mellow and just moving on, I thought, I'm going to America. I'll throw away that part of my life. 
psychologically to start again. And I really tried hard to make it in America and um, had another chapter that was incredible. It went back to its the origin. I, I couldn't be a record label then. I didn't want to work with anybody, really. I ended up working with Robbie Williams, would you believe, based on my songwriting ability. So I was writing songs in this tiny little flat. So a few famous people had lived in these flats where I lived off Abbot Kinney in Venice Beach. And I was getting DJ gigs through a, a guy called Zen Freeman, who's a very big English DJ in Los Angeles. And he was getting me gigs, you know, at the Hollywood Social. So I'd be DJing and it'd be full of directors and actors and very famous people. But of course, it means nothing. Once you live in LA for a bit, you realize they're everywhere. If you go to fill your car up with petrol and Tom Selleck would be like buying some chewing gum and then you turn around, then the Incredible Hulk would be, you know, in the gym. It was like one of those scenarios where you soon realize that everybody who had been famous and was famous and wasn't famous, and this is the thing they don't tell you about LA, is that in our mind's eye, we think, you know, Lou Ferrigno used to be the Hulk. Well, not now. He's like, he's 65 and he's still pumping iron. And he still wants to be famous, but he's not going to be famous. And that's what they don't tell you about L.A., is that it has a river of disappointment running down those streets. Because basically, even the people who are famous in your eyes are no longer famous in Hollywood's eyes. Because Hollywood works on the, are you famous right now? Because if you're not, then nobody wants to know. So it's an interesting environment to be in. Plus, everybody's absolutely beautiful to look at. So you don't want to go there you know, and uh, compete. So I just got my head down DJing. I did some very funny gigs. There's this place in Malibu called the LG House, and it became famous because um, one famous actress with red hair, she was like a teen actress, um, Lindsay Lohan, that's it. Anyway, she, on a night when um, my mate Zen was DJing there, she like stole a car and then crashed it, and it was all across the papers. I ended up DJing in this property where they would launch products so they'd be like it's at the lg house and they're launching a film or whatever and because i was sort of tuned out of the music industry but still loved music i ended up doing this uh, one thing with zen where we had three hours of djing from me then he'd do three hours of djing then i'd come on and do three hours of djing and they'd be like paris hilton lindsay lohan daryl mcdaniels all kinds of very famous people there which really they're the worst people to dj to because they're so concerned about how they're being perceived, that they don't party ever because they're so hammered by their paparazzi vibe. So anyway, I took all my fishing equipment to this house on the Malibu seafront because I knew I'd have three hours off. So I've got three hours, I'm playing like the best music I've got. I'm enjoying it, Zen's enjoying it. He says, okay, it's my turn now. So I go, all right, well, I'm gonna go fishing now, Then You might see me in front of the house here. So anyway, I, I, I went out and um, I start fishing and of course, um, I've been fishing since I was a kid, so I'm quite good at sea fishing. So I've got these big beach casters up and uh, I start catching sharks, right? Like leopard sharks, like about half the size of a man. And of course, everybody, all of these, um, you know, run DMC crew and all of these actors and actresses are running out going, there's a man catching sharks at the front of the house here. And I thought, you know, what am I doing here? I should be DJing in a club where people are dancing, but instead here I am, I'm catching sharks in front of famous people. And I thought this is all a bit too mad for me. So eventually I realized that I wanted to come back. I'd found a lovely lady who I'm now married to and have a son with. And after three years of trying to be the best shark fisherman in Los Angeles, I realized that I was ready to come back. So yeah, it was an incredible experience. And then when I came back, I got in touch with Steve. We did another Rain Christian album. 
just before I came away, I'd stumbled across uh, Mark Foster of Foster the People. He did a song with us before he'd done Pumped Up Kicks with Foster the People. And we made an album, which was released uh, about 10 years ago now, but it was a good album and it had a lot of good artists on it. Ed Harcourt, Gita Langley, Kate Rogers was back on there again. Uh, quite a few Manchester heads as well. So yeah, it sort of went full circle. And to some extent, a line was drawn under all of that then. And I went into the book mode and wrote the autobiography, Northern Suffolk Soul Boy. And then after that, I started writing novels. And I think you were the greatest help to me by um, you know, interviewing me about that. And then people could see that I'd made a inroad into a new creative period of my life. And um, that's very much where I'm at with it now. And you saw I described the psychological impact of, of losing a business and losing a way forward in life to an extent, but being able to direct my art towards writing words as well as still making music has saved me as an individual in my own head because it gives me a way forward, a path to achieve and to grow. And, and honestly, writing is so difficult, but it's so rewarding that it saved my life, really. Mark, it's time for your five picks from 45 questions in this record box here. All the questions are on 45, Steve, so I'll dip into the box. You just say when. Uh, when? Your first question is, what's your definition of being a DJ? The definition of being a DJ is to be a vibrational conduit between the atmosphere in a room or people's heads and how to create a narrative out of rhythm and emotion that takes people on a journey that makes them forget the things that they want to forget and enjoy the things that are inside them. And that, I think, is better than any dictionary definition ever. <laughs> Thank you. Another question. Tell me when, Mark. Oh, okay. I'm pleased I know how to play this now. Uh, when? <laughs> Who are your DJ heroes? Hmm, interesting. You know, mine will be so much linked to the origin story of 1980s hip-hop that perhaps they might be a little bit out of touch with people. They're not going to be people who I know are great DJs who can run a crowd. They're going to be DJs who can, in the studio, create that piece of tension by scratching that is beautiful. So there's a guy called Tat Money, and he comes out of Philadelphia, and he's Steady B's DJ. I love him. Um, I mentioned Cash Money before. He was obviously a guy that led me down the path to understanding how to do double copy scratching. And then another DJ who invented some of the path I've walked down with production is DJ Premier from Gangstar. He started chopping parts of records up on his MPC 60, and then he would make a beat, and then he'd scratch over the top. So they're my hip-hop origin DJs. I'll just throw in a few others that I've walked into a room and I thought, oh my God, this person really knows what they're doing. DJ Heather, who is uh, from Chicago, is an incredible house DJ. Um, I've always enjoyed DJing um, with the next men who have great talents and skills and are a little bit equal to some of the fever nightclub nights where there's a bit of dance hall, a bit of um, hip hop, a bit of soul, you know, it's like all mixed up. They can do that. And of course, I've DJed around a lot with Mr. Scruff, who was always brilliant. And I think there's quite a few there, but you know, they sort of joined the dots for me. DJ. How to DJ with Chris Hawkins. 
still to come. If you're not open enough to hear that or see that people they're getting bored, then you can't really be a good DJ. You've got to see how your records are going down. And I thought, yeah, I need to get an actual agent. <laughs> <laughs> It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And another question from the box now then, and just say when. When. Has technology made DJing better or worse? Very, very good question. Now, I think you can answer this as both. The technology side of it has made it so that um, you can mix in key uh, visually by seeing different colours on a wheel of keys. That, of course, makes mixes sound beautiful musically, so there's harmonics going on. Now... I remember hitting those things by accident as a vinyl DJ and you'd be like, oh my God, this is incredible. Listen to it. That sounds like that backing vocal singing over this part of the bass line there. And you're going, this is in tune. But, you know, going back, that would be something that would happen by accident a little bit. Now you can do it by choice, but then that's a problem because then what happens if you um, are supposed to be twisting the emotions that are happening by actually playing something that's slightly out of tune or out of key with the previous record but then what that does is it sort of then becomes like a cloud storms gathering which are interesting and it draws the dancers into a darker place now if you've got equipment that means that you don't do that because you're always looking at the key then that's a negative you're stuck in a rut also bpm wise you can just go okay i'm going to be around you know 102 bpm here and then you realize hang on 40 minutes have gone and I've only gone up to 106 BPM because I've got so many tunes that are in this BPM. This is the thing I was going back when you're asking to me to describe about what it is. You have to like have an open heart and a spiritual, they call it chakra in Indian culture, but you have to be um, open to what's happening in the atmosphere with people. And it's a bit of a weird one because it's almost slightly spiritual. But if you're in a room and you have played an hour of 106 BPM, if you're not open enough to hear that or see that people, they're getting bored, then you can't really be a good DJ. You've got to see how your records are going down. You've got to realize when it's getting a little bit on the edge of boredom. Now, I'm lucky enough that I can tell within one record when that's happening. And I think that's a key skill because if you know it's happening, you change it. And that's what a good DJ does is he basically knows when it's starting to stale a bit and then they change it. And I think really you've got to be careful that modern technology doesn't take away those gut instincts, which would cut when you did vinyl. I'll go back to another thing. I've just gone to USBs. Before that was on Serato. I did a gig recently on vinyl and I'll be totally honest with you. It's not a very nice thing to admit. I found it so hard. And I found it hard to keep mixes in because it is really hard. And DJing on vinyl, remember, I'm playing funk records next to hip-hop records and go-go records. The drummer on one is changing a bit, and you've got to have your ear tuned in, and you've got to push it round. Well, I mean, who worries so much about that nowadays when the technologies like beat map the grid out? You know, really great DJs can ride the tempo changes. 
even when I'm warming up, I'm constantly, every track, I'm slightly speeding it up so that there's a subconscious sense of things growing. And, you know, I can chop that and jump up. And you can do that if you've got hip hop skills because you can scratch it up and then drop the other track out. So really, vinyl skills I still use on CDJs and the mental memory of how it's all supposed to go. And I do think it shows a difference because if you were born in the technological era, you wouldn't know those skills really because everything's done for you mark another question from the box now you're fourth say when when what's the most fun you've ever had at the decks yeah actually it's quite easy to answer this one i think it's quite weird because i think i've mentioned richard dorfmeister's name three times now i dj'd with uh, richard dorfmeister i think maybe a couple of times i did a levi's international party in belgium and um it was quite funny because I recognised the distance between us as regards popularity. So we went to this restaurant before and it was, you know, Richard Dorfmeister, his manager and whatever, and um, it was a Levi's party. So basically, you know, I'm a working class lad, really. So I um, turn up there and Dorfmeister's like ordering 300 pounds bottles of wine before the gig and then sending them back if he didn't like them. And I'm thinking, this is a bit of a, a new cost base that's going on. Um, so anyway, we get to this venue. It's almost like an amphitheater inside of a, like a film studio. And it's just every single employee of Levi's on a, of a certain level in the world has been flown in to have this special party. And that's uh, me and Dorfmeister. So we've got to entertain him. And he turns to me and he just says, all night, one record each, me and you. And he gets this expensive bottle of vodka out and that was it. And I've never done this before. I think I did something like maybe five hours where... I played a record, he played a record, I played a record. I mean, it's, is it called tennis or whatever it's called, table tennis? Back to back. Back to back, yeah. And um, it was insane because we got very rosy drunk on the vodka. And also it was literally a little bit like being in someone's you know, studio or back in their lounge and them saying, okay, I've got this record. And then you go, no, I've got this record. And it was really quite a lot of concentration needed from both of us as described you know the techniques i've got of changing the speed i'm sure he's got similar things and uh, we just bounced around and um it was so much fun because really in the end it wasn't like it was people who'd come to see either dorfmeister or mark ray we were doing a corporate gig so we sort of took the mick out of it by having the most fun we could have you know it was great and then um, going back to the whole thing of ordering 300-pound bottles of wine and sending them back, then at the end of the night, he was taken to a five-star hotel and I got put in this two-star place, you know, with like a flat mattress and like one sheet. And I thought, yeah, I need to get an actual agent. <laughs> <laughs> one last question from the box for you, Mark. Say when. When. Would you do it all again the same way? Okay, very deep question. I think to be very honest about that, um, no, because I think, you know, I do know that I made mistakes. I do know that you shouldn't have regrets in life. But, you know, there's just so much that I would change. But then I also have to learn as part of life is that you can't go back. And also you have to understand that even if I did go back and I was compassmented of this process, I could have made decisions that were even worse. Because in the end, it's like sport. It's like the team that you think should win a football match often loses it in the last minute against a team that was very poor. So life is random. And I think there was so much to be gained by the experience of everything and so much culture created, so many friendships that have lasted, so many good times that 
no, I shouldn't change it. But I think, you know, I just wish that I'd been able to keep it going, really. But then, no, because I wouldn't have an American wife with a six-year-old son. So it's a funny question. Yes and no is the answer. <laughs> it's been an incredible life, that's for sure. I've got one last question for you, Mark. There's some kind of non-specific catastrophic event with a caveat that you, Mark Ray, have to play the last three records on Earth. What would those three records be? Oh, good Lord. I don't even know if I'm mentally prepared to answer that. It's going to have to be about the lyrics. I mean, if people aren't going to be really up for dancing, there might be a lot of people wanting to shag. So I'm going to have to go for the erection selection and play Two Step Soul, probably. How Could You Break My Heart by Bobby Womack, which probably sort of fits into the aspect of uh, a Two Step Soul. Got to have a cuddly one. And then if we're going to go out on a sort of demonic representation of what we've all done to ourselves, but then the emotional reflection of that, I'd go with bicep glue. Wow, there's going to be a bit of a dance floor shock when that happens. Uh, and then um, for talking about very large explosions, I'd go by uh, Blinded by the Light by Manfred Mann's Earth Band, which I still love. We've got sex, dancing and explosions there. That's the best I can do here. And that's, uh, I think, one of the best answers ever to that question. Mark, thank you so much for being so honest and fascinating. It's, as I said, yours is an incredible story. Mark Ray. Thank you, Chris. Always a pleasure. Loved it. And that was How to DJ. Thanks for listening. Please remember to follow us wherever you get your podcast from. 